the best time to buy that I always believe is when there's confusion in the market because confusion creates bargains. Most of the wealth in this country, the great majority of the very wealthy people, made the substantial portion of the net worth buying and selling real estate. Coming up, Ariane talks with real estate expert Barbara Corcoran, next on Change Nation from the first 30 days. Hello and welcome to the first 30 days. Today's interview is about the first 30 days of making more money with a special emphasis on real estate. I have the great honor of speaking with Barbara Corcoran. Barbara is the founder of the Corcoran Group, which she started at age 23 by borrowing $1,000, quitting her job as a waitress, and starting a small New York City real estate company. Today, the Corcoran Group is one of the most famous real estate companies in the country, is a multi-billion dollar business, and employs thousands. Barbara is also the real estate contributor on the Today Show and CNBC, has regular columns in the Daily News and Red Book magazine, and gives speeches all across the country. She is also the author of a wonderfully named book, If You Don't Have Big Breasts, Put Ribbons on Your Pigtails, which is a national bestseller, full of tips and wisdom about building a business. So we'll also be touching on the first 30 days of starting a business. Barbara, I've heard such wonderful things about you, and I read your book actually over this past weekend, so it's a real pleasure to welcome you to the first 30 days. I'm so happy to hear you read it. <laughs> no, it was, it's lovely, and I actually recommend it to a few other women that I met who were starting businesses. And ah, just now to, I know why it's selling well. That's good to hear. Just Keep it going. <laughs> so, Barbara, in real estate, what's the most misunderstood thing about real estate? For people just getting started, what, what are some myths up front that you think we, we need to bust just to get people on the right track? Well, one that maybe some people realize if they've been out shopping any market, whether it be good market or a tough market as it is right now because it's so uncertain, is that um, you never get exactly what you want. And I think anyone who's been out shopping the market finds in the end they never get exactly what they want, but they get most of what they're looking for if they stay the course. Hmm. Um, beyond that, I would say uh, the most, the least understood of all is that the best time to buy that I always believe is when there's confusion in the market because confusion creates bargains. And so I believe the one thing that people don't realize is that right now, (laughs) it's the kind of market everybody's been dreaming about. A lot of inventory, a lot more choices on the market, desperate sellers, and cheap money at the same time, low interest rates, and a lot of uncertainty. And that's the kind of market where you can get your first investment vehicle, first house. And if you've got the courage and the chutzpah, as we say in New York, to do it, it's exactly when you look back and say, boy, wasn't I really smart? Because buying in a lonely market's always the smartest time. Barbara, do you think real estate is for everyone? No, I don't think so. I think real estate is for everyone who wants to um, have a home because you've got to live somewhere. And no matter where you live or what you've paid, in my book, it's always better to pay yourself and have forced savings of paying off your mortgage every month because people really do meet those payments. Last thing they don't pay Um, because you've got to live somewhere and it's a lot better than paying a landlord to get rich. I mean, most of the wealth in this country, the great majority of the very wealthy people made the substantial portion of the net worth buying and selling real estate. And so why would anybody want to make the other guy rich? However, as an investor, I don't think real estate's for everyone. I think real estate has risk associated with it to begin with because you're putting your money down on a bet and hoping you're picking well. 
Also, other people sleep well at night knowing their money is dangling out there and they're relying on tenants to pay off their mortgage because in essence, that's what you're doing. And so I think for people who are going to worry themselves and are not comfortable with the risk aspect of real estate, then real estate is not for them either. Lastly, I think you have to have a little bit of a love affair in real estate to get into it in the first place because you're going to need the love affair, the image of isn't it great to be a landlord and building equity quietly through the night. You're going to need that love affair once you're introduced to the first time to a non-paying tenant that you want to get out of your building as fast as you can because you can't meet your mortgage because they're not paying their rent. And so you have to have the love affair like a good marriage to see you through the bad times. And so I think you have to give some thought to whether you are a typical real estate investor that does well in the process of getting in the first place, holding with it and staying with it. And I think those are questions that very often people don't ask. Barbara, what mistakes do people make? What are what are some common things that people could avoid when they do go out and buy their property? They could probably avoid all the mistakes that I made uh, and lost a lot of money doing. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that uh, club. Um, w- one of the most uh, ridiculous mistakes I made was with the very first uh, real estate investment I made. It was a 11-unit small motel. Uh, two doors down from a country house that we had scrapped together, my husband and I, to finally be able to buy a weekend house. And an old man was selling it, wanting to retire, had uh, full lake views, and it was a dump of a motel that was an eyesore to the neighborhood. So as a little do-gooder, I thought, hey, we'll take that motel down, build something else, and on top of that, we'll have a great real estate investment for the rest of our lives here. Well, we got a great deal. We bid out someone else. We got the motel. And the number one mistake I will never make again is I was told what the rent roll was. I did the numbers. It made sense. It had a nice return until we could get approvals to tear the motel down and build something nice. But I never bothered to check to see if the tenants were paying the rent. They all had signed leases, but there was only one out of 11 people that had paid their rent in the last year. It was really a charity motel. And so collecting back rent was an impossibility. People had no income. It was really a retirement home. His old friends and buddies and the guy never could collect rent. So I would never buy another investment vehicle without actually not only seeing the leases, but seeing the rent receipts, just seeing the rent receipts to see if the rent's coming in. Many people buy real estate based on uh, setup sheets, as they're called in the trade, showing what the rent roll is and then what the potential rent roll is. Very few people actually look at rent receipts. They examine leases, but not rent receipts. I wouldn't do that again. Second lesson I learned on that motel is never buy a piece of property without a clear understanding of what you're going to do with it. I thought it would make a great uh, vacationary weekend condos. I had all these ideas, which you really need investment real estate. It's just one good idea that actually works that you've checked out. I never checked with the town to see what the zoning ordinance was. I couldn't replace the motel even with a motel. I couldn't build a condominium. I couldn't build one-family houses. It had to be a motel site. And so as a result of that, I was stuck with a motel with nobody except that one old lady who became my favorite who was paying the rent. And so I think you have to have clarity of what you're after. You need to do due diligence, which is the most boring word in the world, whether you do it or your attorney does, but you've got to check out what you usually assume to be fact. And you've got to check the rent roll. And that's just for starters. That was on my first investment property. And I think I've made a mistake on every third or fourth investment property along the way. But you know what's great about real estate, if you're meant for it, is it's forgiving. You can actually 
be an absolute dunce and do all the wrong things on every fourth property and you can still make a ton of money because real estate intrinsically goes up in value over the long haul and real estate quietly makes profits through appreciation whether or not you're getting a good return month to month. And that's how people get rich in real estate. Barbara, on that point, do you think a lot of people do make money in real estate? Most people make money in real estate, even in this terrible financial debacle we all find ourselves in throughout the nation, the great majority of people who are living in houses right now, their homes are worth much more than they paid. Probably the only people who have to question whether the value is in the home they they are sitting in are the people who have bought in the last two years. Those are the homeowners that many times overpaid not knowing that the real estate market was going to shake out. No one knew. Who could predict that? I mean, it's easy now on Monday morning to be the quarterback and say how we all saw it coming. The fact is, even those who were seeing it coming had blinders on. So you couldn't see that coming. But when you look at all the real estate markets, even today, if you go on to the National Association of Realtor Report, two out of three of the metropolitan areas in the United States are still going up in value. But there's so much negative publicity that you think every market is losing value. It's only one-third of the markets have been hit that are losing value. Two-thirds are still clicking right up in appreciation, some of them to amazing degrees because they have a great local economy, great job market, young people moving in, new development, not too much of it, great climate, different things that drive real estate markets, but it's always local. And two out of three markets still are doing so well in America. But if you separate just the one-third of the markets that are now falling down to different degrees, anywhere from 2% a year to 12% a year, I think in parts of Florida, 21%, I think, was the highest number in the last 12 months. Those markets are, are, even in those markets, only the people who bought in the last two, two and a half years have been hit by what's going on in real estate. Everyone else who bought before that is at least whole, and most of those people are sitting on houses worth much, much more than they spent in the first place. And besides which, I have to say again, you have to live somewhere, so you're going to be paying out rent if you weren't in your house anyway, but people have learned to expect to live for free because they expect the appreciation to be just so large when it comes time to sell that they look back and say, my God, I've lived for free. And that is possible and likely with the great majority of homeowners and home sellers, but it isn't possible with the people who have bought in the recent few years. Barbara, talking about selling, when do you know if it's the right time to sell? Or are you more a proponent of buying and holding no matter what? And you're asking me as a homeowner or as an investor? investor? Um, It depends upon what your own personal goal is. My whole goal in real estate is to try to buy properties in up-and-coming areas, meaning areas that are a bit neglected, that are just starting. I like to not second-guess or even make a wild guess as to what's going to be good five years out. I like to see the beginning of a turnaround, and those are the areas I shop like crazy and try to grab real estate. And my whole goal is not to make money month to month or year to year. My whole goal is to put in 20 or 25% cash, leverage for the rest of the money from a bank, and pay whatever the interest rate is. But my goal on day one is to break even. I just want the tenants to pay off my mortgage and taxes and expenses. So I find that if I put 20 or 25% in, I will buy those properties in an up-and-coming area where they're going to break even. 
with that much cash. And that's my little God that I serve or my little barometer as to whether I should go or whether I should say, no, thank you. All right. That being said, I don't expect to make money on those buildings ever until it comes time to sell. And when it comes time to sell, when is the right time for me? For me, it's when that area has appreciated so much because it went from being the poor second cousin to the desirable first cousin <laughs> that everybody is coveting. And when, when it's at, once it's at that point where it's, where it's being coveted as a house in a neighborhood that everybody wants, I know that my little investment is worth so much more than I paid for it. And that, for me, is the time that I tend to sell unless I have nothing else to do with the money or can't make money any better. And then I'll let it sit there too and just make your nice even 8, 7, 10% a year for the next whatever many years, sometime for the whole term of the mortgage. But if I feel I have another property I'd like to use that cash for, and what typically happens is I take the cash out, have such a big profit when I sell that I can buy three more properties and put the 20, 25% down and leverage fully and then wait neighborhoods to grow up and be really successful. So that's my little strategy. And it's not too sophisticated because I don't even know what points of return are and all this fancy stuff that people talk about. All I do is my little math, my little amount of cash down, can it break even? And then I just focus my energy on really trying to identify the next up and coming area. That's where my head is at. Because once you identify that, you can actually overpay for something and not get hurt because the appreciation covers a variety of mistakes. You could have a bum tenant and still not get hurt because even if you have a shortfall that month, you get your, I do it regularly. I have my property reappraised just to feel good. And then I say that tenant's not so bad because in the quiet appreciation, make another, you know, $6,000 a year on the property anyway. What, what difference does it make a month's rent? And so I can justify even the bad times with knowing that I'm running for that end site, which is I'm going to get that big reward when it comes time to sell because good areas always appreciate that's what happens. Very interesting. Barbara, as a homeowner, what do you think people can do in their current homes to either improve the value of their property or, or save money? based on what they have already? Well, I think the goal of a homeowner shouldn't be, uh, honestly, uh, what could I do for the next guy, the next guy being who I sell to. I think many people get wrapped up in that and either wind up doing nothing because they can't justify the logic of spending $35,000 on a new kitchen when they're not sure if they get the $35,000 out when it comes time to sell because they're not sure if they're going to sell in one year or five years. Will the kitchen still be new enough or will they have to do it again? Will the buyer out there really want that kind of kitchen? It gets complicated. I believe the smartest things to do to improve the value of your home is to do something that you're going to enjoy, but to do it with prudence. By prudence, I mean go out and shop the new home market and see what's happening out there. I like to, when I improve my home, because I live in New York City and I'm, I'm a constant renovator, I can always think of the next thing that's better. Why am I improving it all the time? A, most importantly, I want to make myself and my family happy. I want to enjoy my day-to-day living where I live. I want to feel like I have a nest that I can't wait to get home to. And that's what makes me spend money on wherever I live. On top of that, before I improve anything, even though I have specific tastes and kind of know what I want, and I'm reading decorating magazines because I love to do that, the fact is I get up 
and I go shop the brand new condominium market, the high price condominium market, and I see what the new developers are putting in their kitchens. Because you know why? If I hadn't done that, I would have a butcher block top in my kitchen because I love the look of butcher block. But when I go into the new home developments, the new condominium developments, I see that marble is in, granite is out, uh, black is out, pale beiges are in. And so then I go home with an eye toward making an improvement in my kitchen that's ahead of its time. Something that pleases me personally is my number one thing that I'm serving. And the number two thing is something that makes sense for the open market should I decide to sell. But I think when people get their priorities switched and they're thinking, oh, what should I do? And I get so many emails and questions about that kind of, what should I do to improve my home for the next person? My first question back always is, oh, are you planning to sell right now? No, we're planning. When are you planning to sell? Two years, three years, four years, five? Hey, first off, please yourself. But before you please yourself, go out and shop the market and see what's out there that's modern, what's attractive to buyers, so that as you spend the money, you get the double advantage of thinking you're smart at the same time. Barbara, one more question on on this topic specifically. For someone who's never done anything in real estate, and they're on day one and they want to get started and they've heard this. Do you recommend any resources, any specific books, a website for them to just get smart about this, familiarize themselves? And you're themselves? talking again about buying your first home? Buying my first home. Okay. Two words of advice I would give. Um, don't do a lot of research on the web or anything. And not that I don't take full advantage of everything online. Can't imagine life without it. But I find too much information uh, causes a lack of decision in anything, and it's certainly true about buying your first home. I think the most important thing you do, you can use online to kind of scan the market, get a bird's eye view of about what's selling for what. You can use online to keep abreast of what's coming in, what's new in the market. But I think there's no replacement for getting up and going out and visiting open houses. Every community in America has open houses every community. And I think just to become a shopper of open houses is a really smart idea. I think not only in your own neighborhood where you think you want to buy, but I think it's good to widen your horizons and shop other neighborhoods as well. And there's no better place and more meaningful, impactful way to do it than to actually walk into people's homes and actually have a look, right? I think the other uh, piece of advice I would share is don't ask someone else's opinion, honestly, because I think especially most people tend to go to people on opinions when they're a little bit frightened. They go to the people who love them the most. And what people who love you the most will always tell you to do is not to do. And why do they give you the good advice, the sage advice, be careful? It's because they don't want to see you hurt. You honor them by coming to them and asking their opinion. They love you to death. You value their opinion. And the last thing they're going to do is say, go for it, baby. Just go for it. Don't worry about it. Just go for it. You won't get that kind of advice. So I think what you have to do is you have to find you, know, you have to you find your courage from within. But the courage comes somehow when you have the knowledge base of having been in the market and shopping. And the last I would say, if I could throw in one for good measure, is trust your heart. 
If you're attracted to something emotionally, it turns you on for whatever reason, whether it be a fixer-upper that you could see through it and know what you could do with it, and so you're in love with that vision, or whether it's the actual property exactly as it is, or what woodshed in the backyard, or the sunny disposition of the front rooms, whatever it is, even if you can't justify what it is, if you're turned on by it, I think it's always worth paying more for. Pay a little more to get that house, because when the times go bad, it's the pretty houses that always sell first, the pretty condos that always sell first. So I don't believe in nickel-diming to get a better value. I think you pay for pretty, and it's in a way an insurance policy for future times if things, if the market goes south, you know? And then last, and I just thought of one more I just have to throw in, after you say I do, my God, remember that everybody who buys their first house has buyer's remorse. My first house, my husband and I, he didn't cry because he's too much of a macho guy, but I cried myself to sleep. I knew I had made the worst mistake in my life. And he was starting to agree with me, wasn't crying, but was shaking in his boots. All that is is stinking thinking that's called buyer's remorse. There's a reason there's a label on it because everybody feels it. And so if you thought it was a good thing to do and you got involved in it, and then after you said, I do and sign the contract or got the price accepted that you offered, ignore your emotions because all that is is, is spooky fear coming in to shake you down. And people that I've met over the many years I've been in this business who paid attention to that fear and bowed out, always regretted the horse that got away. And they never replace it. And so you have to ignore the jitters that happen right after you get involved in your first home. Barbara, just because I've read your book, I wanted to, if I, if we still can, talk a little bit about the first 30 days of starting a business and the business that you've built sort of throughout the years, you've become a legendary example of what's possible. Why do you think you've been so successful at this business? If, yeah, if I had to pick one thing, if we're running out of time, I would say dyslexia. Thank God I was dyslexic as a child. Because being dyslexic, which then was not dyslexic, it was simply being stupid. You were labeled as the stupid kid. Being stupid hurts you so deep as a child because as a child in a school environment where you can't compete or do what other children are able to do naturally, which is read and write, uh, it erodes your confidence to such a point that you become a different person. You, you go in hiding. Well, typically the profile is girls go in hiding and boys act out. So I was a girl, so I went in hiding. I got quiet, didn't say a word, wouldn't speak up. I just didn't want anyone else to see how stupid I was. So I went into myself. That's such a painful experience in school to be called out to read out loud and to have to stand publicly and fail in front of your peers in shame. That's where I learned shame. And so I would have to say I credit all of my success in business with getting even, honestly, because I couldn't wait to get out of that jailhouse called school where I couldn't succeed at anything I touched. And so getting out of there was anything was going to be better. And my whole career has been one long day in, day out attempt to prove to the world that I am not stupid. I am not stupid. I just think in different ways. I have a great imagination. I know about people. I can read people better inside and out than a book. And I could read them on site. And you know why? Because I couldn't do anything else, and that's what I practiced doing. My imagination and trying to figure out how to, how to hide from someone who might call me out, honestly. 
And so you become very good at surviving at people's smarts and great at thinking of things in your mind because you have to occupy yourself if you're not learning eight hours a day. What are you going to do? You're going to imagine things. And that's what I got my practice at. And so it just happened by potluck to lend itself to the real estate business because as we know in real estate, it has a lot to do with fact, but it almost has everything to do with emotion and people. And that happens to be what I'm good at. So I got lucky in the right path. But you know what? Honestly, all businesses that way. It has nothing to do with real estate. The people that succeed in business are very good with people. They're not necessarily good with money. I don't know the first thing about money, but I've got great common sense. And you know what? I picked out a great money partner in my business who was as good at money as I was in advertising PR and baloney. So you know, you find your way too and what you lack. So I would say, again, the only reason, not the only reason, but perhaps the main reason that I succeeded so well in my career, hopefully in my new career, do equally well, is because I'm so damn insecure. And no matter how hard you work, whatever you get as a kid that's so deep-seated, you never shake it. And I'm, I'm annoyed that I can't shake it. But every time I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm going to fail. And that gets me to over-prepare, work my ass off and make sure I don't fail because I don't want to be publicly embarrassed anymore. I know one of the things that's most touching in your book is how much of an incredible force your mom was in your life. And I know you were, I mm. believe, a child of one of 10 kids. Is that correct? That's right. Well, those were her kids. They were my siblings. I know. She got the hard part. Um, is there one specific thing that you sort of take with you on a daily basis from her, which is sort of your, your... There's not a day in my work or personal life that I don't look at a person and think, what's their gift? Because that's what my mother did with all 10 of her gifts. She got one of every flavor in her family. You know, we run the spectrum. But my mother would decide on the birth of each of her kids exactly what she thought their gift was. I don't know how she knew. She probably didn't know. She probably made it up. But what was important is she constantly told us what our gift was. So for me, even though I hated school when I came home, she constantly told me I had a wonderful imagination. You have a wonderful imagination. You have a wonderful imagination. And she would put me in roles in the family unit, which is like a small town when you have 10 kids. It's like you have your own town. But my role was entertaining the kids, thinking up games, making board games, playing out. You know, I, I was in charge of entertainment with my imagination. And so what I do every day of my life, I can't help but to meet the UPS guy who came this morning before I came to work. And first thing I said is, well, wow, what a great set of legs you have. He had those brown shorts on. What great legs. This guy was gushing as he dropped off his package. He forgot to have me sign for it. I had to go down the elevator and chase him. But that's a ridiculous example. But with the people I work with, I've got, for example, I have a woman who's a phenomenal writer, okay? But if I talk to her about a story segment we're producing, she can't express herself well. And it took me thinking, okay, let her put her ideas down on paper for me. I mean, the ideas this girl comes up with, she's a young woman, only 21 right out of college. She's amazing because I let her write. She writes so well. And that's her gift. She's a writer. And, and so I didn't hire her for that, but now she writes full time. So I think picking out in people what you think the one thing they do well that they often don't know themselves um, 
brings out the best in people. And that I get from my mother because she sure never focused on the negative. She could have rode my ass every day on bringing home the report card I did. But instead, she hands it to my father and she had him sign saying I was trying my best. And he signed away all these different names like Elliot Ness, Rock Hudson. He would sign. He made a joke of it. Because she knew I couldn't get better at that, you see? And so I think focusing on the positive is great for kids, but it sure as hell is great for employees too. Because what you build is a team of happy people doing what they do best. Barbara, one last question on this. What are your top, top three tips to any entrepreneur that might be listening to this? The first I would say is don't expect to find courage somehow through reading. I mean, not what people find different ways, all right? But I find in business, you find the courage on the way down when you jump off the cliff. A lot of people think, well, okay, I'm at this precipice. I'm at this juncture. I have this problem. I have this whatever. And they're trying to think through um, what a good solution is or how to get their head in the right place or whatever. I find you just jump off, jump into boom, And guess what? As you're in the air, you're going to find a way to land properly. <laughs> you just, because you need the force of the problem on your back to think of a solution. So I think people who try to, uh, in an educated way, analyze to a solution is not good. I think it's just rolling up, jumping in there, getting out there. Okay? Don't worry about what you don't do well, but find someone who does it well. The day that Esther Kaplan walked into my office, she was 10 years older than me. I was probably 24. Five at the time, I had just left my boyfriend, Damon, who had married my secretary and, and who was also my partner. So I found myself in business for myself suddenly. Thank God he did me a favor. All right. But let me not go down that whole path. But Esther Kaplan, my future partner, walked into the office and wanted to sell. She was not a salesman. It wasn't her personality. And so I immediately thought to myself, what could I use her for? As I did with anyone I interviewed, because I liked her. She was solid. And then she gave me the best gift when she took my business card at the end of the interview and in her purse, and her purse was a miniature file cabinet in perfect order. I wanted to take a picture of it. Too bad we didn't have cell phones that took pictures then. And I looked at her purse, and I knew she was going to be my operations person for my business as I grew it. And she was so tight with money, I knew she was going to run my money. If not, Her, I would have never succeeded in business because she was as good with the money and the operations as I was good in the marketing and the outside piece, the sales piece. And so I would have been terrible. I never passed a math course, all right? but she was great. So whatever you don't have, look for someone who's got it. Don't be afraid of partnerships. There's something wonderful about winning with a partner and sharing the joy. There's also something wonderful about failing and crying together. I mean, it's hard to take a hit and be by yourself and be the only person in charge and it's your problem. And even if you have a bad partner, I had a partner that was a good partner for a while and wasn't a bad partner when he left me for my secretary, but who cares? He was a great partner for that chapter and life goes on, you find somebody else. All right, and last, I would say, the key to making money is not understanding about money because sure as heck, I've never gotten that. The key to making money is hiring the right people. And so, Look for great people with potential talent. I never hired anybody based on their resume or what they did before. I found it misled me. It misled me greatly, right? I always hired people based on my gut reaction was for what they could be good at. And once you tap into that and people, you own them for life. They're loyal to you. I never had a turnover in my business ever in the real estate business that is known for high turnover, except, of course, when I fired people, which I did religiously 
when they didn't produce in sales. Because what are they doing in life when they can't do well? It was mean for me to keep them there is how I looked at it. But you have to keep people in the right roles. And then you've got an army that the biggest competitors can't beat back. You'll take over simply because you have the strongest people on your team. It's all in the people. It has nothing to do with the business. The way that we end all our interviews here at the first 30 days across all our experts and every life change that we it ask them. It better not be a Christmas carol, for God's sake. No, it isn't. I'm not going to make you sing, I promise. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but it's something very interesting. We, we basically look for what is it that makes us all sort of similar across this subject of change. Mm-hmm. And so... Even though I said I wouldn't ask you any more questions on real estate or starting a business, these are not them. They are very specifically about changes that have happened to you in your life. Mm-hmm. And they'll take less than 30 seconds, probably. Mm-hmm. What is the best change that you've ever made? Um, it's funny. You know what I thought you were going to ask me, which I'd probably have a better answer to if I could change it a little bit. What's the hardest change I've made? Sure. Is that all right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Because best change, I think change is so great in itself. I mean, sometimes change for change's sake is great. In fact, often for a company, I, I, I just want to say one thing. I used to, when the company was much younger, before we had multiple offices, I would make people change their seat every third month. They hated me for it. But you know what? They learned from the next guy, you know, it spread the wealth. Right? So change for change's sake. You discover when you make it for change's sake. You get some gold out of it. All right. The hardest change in my life to date has truly been selling my business and going from a public, powerful personality to a nobody and thinking I'd be okay with it. And I was not, all right? And I thought I had accomplished enough and felt good enough about myself. And now I had enough money not to ever worry about money again. Boy, is that a false Trojan horse. You worry about losing it's what happens, all right? But I thought I would never worry and be happy as could be with all this freedom. And as many entrepreneurs find, they're dead in the water with freedom. They want a corral of people to a mountain, a boat to steer. You know, They want it because they thrive on it. They've done well in it. And so the hardest change for me was to become a nobody and to try to keep my confidence intact that I could be a somebody and successful at something else again. For the two years between selling my business and starting my little media company, where I knocked on every door and everybody was nice, but nobody hired me, and everybody liked what I said, but nobody bought in, and everybody took my call, but nobody called back, I was watching my confidence that I had accumulated over 30 years of enormous success by anyone's standard, and I was watching it erode on a daily basis and hanging on by my fingernails. I got to a point where I didn't even know what to dress in in the morning because I didn't know who I was anymore. The old clothes I had didn't seem right. The new clothes weren't right. I didn't even know. I was starting to even think that I was lucky to have success. I was really near that point. But thank God for my perseverance that no matter what's happening, I keep plugging away. I keep plugging away. That I've got in space. That finally something broke. And once somebody wants something, just like in real estate, everybody wants it. And so once I had one little break, I started getting hired and started building my new career all over again. Thank God. But the process of getting from a high to a low and crawling your way back up again, I would have never envisioned to be as difficult because I thought I was a lot more confident than I was. And I found out we're all little babies and we're back to our lowest point when times are tough as to who we were at our lowest point. I was right back there, speedy as could be. And so I would say in conclusion that change sucks. It's hard. It's just hard. It's hard no matter who you are. 
And so maybe there's misery in company or company loves misery or whatever that expression is that I just messed up. Maybe that makes you feel better. But everybody finds change hard. It's so much easier to be in a function, a role, a suit than to leave it. It really does. And it's not easy. Is perseverance the belief that you go to when things are changing? Oh, it's not even a belief. It's a habit. I learned in building my brokerage business that at the worst times when interest rates were 18% and I was almost out of business that juncture, when I overextended through growing too fast and owed so much money I was going to go out of business at that juncture, when the stock market crashed, whatever year that was, and I was going out of business like everybody else was going out of business. Those are all the times I was convinced I was going out of business. I learned that even though you've exhausted all 10 of your ideas and you're exhausted and you have every right to say, I've tried everything, that's exactly when the answer is around the corner. Because it was always on that 11th thing when I thought, well, what the hell? Seems ridiculous, but why didn't I try it? That was always what saved me. And so in this juncture of passing from one life to another life in business, that's what I leaned on. I'm thinking, listen, The rules couldn't have changed that much. All right, I'm not popular anymore. All right, I have no power anymore. All right, I I accept all that. But it can't be that the universe doesn't honor you if you really just don't give up. That can't change. That's been going on. I remember the, you know, in the wars, that's a battle cry. That can't have changed. It doesn't mean I was smiling, getting myself up, dusting off. I was crying, and I was faking it. I wasn't believing anything would happen after a while, but I did get back up. And you want to know you get rewarded, but I'm sure I'll have my very rough periods again, but that old rule of just staying with it, for me, always works long after you really should have not stayed with it anymore. You, like, you're a jerk for staying with it. It makes no sense. You know? God has a sense of humor. I guess he just likes to tease people and make it really hard at times. So money doesn't come easily. You have to be a jerk to get it. What do you think about that? (laughs) I love it, and I love the the humor that you have throughout all of this. Barbara, thank you so much for your wisdom, your time, all the questions that you allowed me to ask. You're such an example of what's possible and what to do with such warmth, intelligence, and especially humor as well. Well, I hope to keep that going. We'll see, you know. Life's a long way off. Still. It is. <laughs> we've been we've been speaking with Barbara Corcoran, founder of the Corcoran Group, a multi-billion dollar real estate company, also known as the Queen of New York City real estate. She's also the author of a book that I highly recommend, having just read it. If you don't have big breasts, put ribbons on your pigtails. Very much a, a business book as much as it is a book about life. And you can also catch her regularly on CNBC as well. And please check out our website, barbaracorcoran.com. Barbara, thank you. And I hope our paths cross soon at some point in person. Me too. Thank you. Be well. Thanks. Bye-bye.